Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast, Deborah. Deborah and I have decided to break this show down into two parts for timing purposes. That way we can allow ample time for both of these subjects. The first subject of part one today is going to be breast implants and where they fit in for reconstructive surgery, where they fit in for just basically people wanting to get breast breast implants to make themselves look good. And the next part two, we'll go dive into dealing with breast cancer. One of the things that most of us haven't been exposed to breast implant illness, it's surprisingly swept under the rug. And it befundles my mind because it's more common than most people ever hear of. Today's guest, Advanced Practice RN, with over 35 years of experience working with patients. She has a background as an ICU nurse, and she is also studying to be a functional medicine practitioner. Deborah is also a two-time cancer survivor. Deborah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Tom. I'm really pleased to be here. So let's start with the implant aspect of breasts. You know, as a man, breasts are important to us for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I'm not going to lie, I like seeing a good set of breasts. So, and this is the Rebel Health Coach Show, and I'm a rebel, so let's just start there. And let's talk about breast implants and the politics of breast implants. I'm so glad you bring that up because while I don't intend for this to be political, it's almost impossible for it not to be political. Just uh, a little bit of my background about how I got interested in this is that I was diagnosed with breast cancer six years ago. And as I was going through the consults and the advice and the opinion that everyone had about what I should or shouldn't do, I was really struck with the fact that, that the advice, whether it came from men or women or doctors or coaches or you know whoever, was really influenced by politics and women's bodies. And I remember saying to my husband, one day I'm really going to start working with women and the whole subject is going to be the politics of boobs because everyone seems to have an opinion, but I'm dealing with a life and death issue. And so as I've progressed and learned more about all the different treatments and the resulting difficulties and complications, it brought me into really wanting to bring awareness about breast implants and the health issues that can come up when women have had them put in. Okay. I, I, I also have to add, I want you to go a little bit more in depth about your story, but this story is not just for women. It also can explain some unexplained health conditions to men because when we look at the, at the autoimmune component of silicone and silica, we see the construction workers and miners and other folks in certain occupational hazards that are at risk. So I wanted to clarify that, too, for the people listening. But, Deborah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story, where you, you I mean, you're, you're an RN, and I know that you have been an RN for quite some time. 
you're very knowledgeable in in this subject, and you're also very knowledgeable in diabetes because you've helped me a little bit with my daughter. Great. Why don't you tell us how you got into this and how you decided to go into functional medicine and, and where the cancer plays into this? Well, I'm really glad that you bring that up because um, it's a significant part of my story that I was trained and practiced in the traditional, traditional medical world for 35 years. I mean, I was plugged into the medical matrix. I was a Western-trained nurse. I was an ICU nurse. And so when my own health issues came up, you know, that was the system that I turned towards. And, you know, I can tell you now that sometimes I, I question, like, why didn't I ask that question then? Or why didn't I know differently? Or why didn't I do differently? Because I work in that field. But the fact is, is that we make the decisions that we make with the best information we have at the time, you know, regardless of, you know, how we got there. It was after my, um, I have to say, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2000 and went through traditional treatment and ended up with a very unusual complication that left me paralyzed in my left leg for two and a half years. Wow. So... During the course of that time, even though I was going through Western medical doctors, I became very aware of the fact that I'd go to one doctor for um, the GYN issues with the hysterectomy and ask something about what was happening with my leg and, you know, the wounds and the the paralysis I experienced. And the GYN doctor would say, oh, no, I don't handle the leg. I just do the GYN parts. I'd be like, okay. So then I'd go to the vascular people and I'd say, yeah, but I'm having an infection or whatever going on with my abdominal incision. And they're like, well, we don't do that. We only do the vascular system. And it just made me crazy that, that it's like you were compartmentalized. You know, It's like my body isn't broken up into this system and that system. They were all working together. And that particular approach is, in my opinion, very prevalent in, in medicine. We moved to a point where doctors and practitioners specialize And it's like, well, I don't do that part of the body. Well, I don't do that part of the body. Well, I don't do the mental part and I don't do the spiritual part because I'm a surgeon. And it's like, yeah, but those are all me. And so um, that's that's when I really got interested in integrative medicine. And that's when I went back and got my master's degree in nursing and integrative medicine because I just really felt there was a need to you know, take this holistic approach to, to patient care, you know, that, uh, that there was something missing by making people different parts and that there wasn't a practitioner bringing the whole together. And so that really influenced my um, career at the time, moving out of a, a traditional, almost exclusive Western medicine model. And then I got, uh, six years ago, was diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, bilateral breast cancer, and um, I was a little bit more knowledgeable, but the same issue came up, and, and I chose to turn to Western medicine to deal with that. I had a lot of complications afterwards. I ended up going through eight surgeries in three years, and I would turn to my doctors, and I did. I had a great, I had a great surgeon, a great plastic surgeon in San Francisco who, it was a godsend that he was my doctor because I'm not sure I would have gotten through it as well with other doctors. My, my husband once said to him, what I appreciate about, appreciate about you is not only your skill and your ability to handle what's happening with her body, but you also have the sensitivity to handle what's happening with her emotionally as well. And he, it, that was just a godsend to me. That's very, very rare. Yeah. And, you know, not, not to say anything bad about surgeons, but surgeons, you know, they, that's not really a strong suit for many surgeons that I've worked with. 
you know, in, in my career, they're, they're surgeons and it's a very, no pun intended, it's a very cut and dry kind of personality that, that tends to go that way. So I really lucked out. But the reality is, is I was having a lot of complications and I, I really appreciated my surgeon's ability to say, I don't know where to go here. I'm absolutely committed to your recovery, but I'm at the end of what I know how to do. And once again, that took me back to that whole person approach, like like the, the recovery, the emotional and mental and, and even physical recovery, uh, the stress of, of all of that was taking a toll on me and my husband in untold ways. And I really needed to come back and look at what that was about and, and how to change that trajectory. Because as functional medicine practitioners, you and I and other people who work in this area know that stress is a major contributing factor to any illness. And you can be doing everything perfectly right. And if you're in a stress response and you're generating stress hormones all the time, it's either going to delay your healing or it's going to prevent you from healing. It's not something that you do when you feel like it. It's integral to any recovery from any illness that you have. It's part of the equation. Stress is a huge part of the equation. Exactly. And, and we dismiss it, you know, um, you and I both have a teacher. I, I, I love it when she says, let's, talk, let's stop talking about stress and do something about it. You know, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm stressed out. I'm stressed out. Well, well, the fact is, is that we need to incorporate ways to deal with it and stop just giving it lip service because it's, it's hurting all of us, whether we're sick or healthy or whatever. It's taking a toll on all of us. So after I acknowledged that, it really took me, it, you know, it was one step at a time until I got into functional medicine and, you know, really had to start looking at, you know, what is, what is going on here? There's, there's a story to, to know. There's something to know besides just waiting until I'm sick and I'm diagnosed with cancer and figuring out what to do. It's like, what is, what, what is happening? What is my history? What is going on that's even predisposing me to get cancer? As a two-time survivor, it really scared me to death. And uh, so that's what took me into functional medicine. And I, I really you know, kind of went down that rabbit hole of, of really looking at diet and lifestyle. And in my case, I, I absolutely believe that I was predisposed to cancer because of the, the geographic area of the country that I grew up in, which was the Southwest. And they were doing nuclear testing in the 50s and 60s in New Mexico, Nevada, and Arizona. And I grew up in Arizona. And I, I think that, that my and my family were uh, exposed to low-level radiation. We've all had some form of cancer that, that encompasses the spectrum. And so, you know, as a functional medicine practitioner, I can look at like, wow, you know, what about detoxification? What about supporting, you know, my, my natural system to, you know, kind of deal with some of those things so that maybe I can be ahead of this before I'm told for a third time I have cancer? Wow. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's, I mean, we're talking the big C, you know, and it's, it's a scary situation. And, and, you know, you get diagnosed with it and it becomes even scarier. You don't know where to turn. Well, that's exactly the, the core piece of it. Um, I don't think there's anything that strikes fear into anybody's heart more than the diagnosis of cancer or the fear that you might get cancer. And even among Western medicine practitioners and functional medicine practitioners, I mean, it stops people dead in their tracks. Cancer is overwhelming. The diagnosis of cancer is overwhelming. And one of the reasons that I practice in this area is that I am absolutely committed to helping women navigate that fear and overwhelm 
that you experience when you're told that you have cancer, particularly breast cancer. I think every cancer is serious. I think that there are some aspects of breast cancer that are unique because it brings into question issues of your femininity, your sex life, your relationships. It's, it's, I think it, it's particularly powerful in the fact that it's your breast and, and it really brings into questions of identity. And as a functional medicine practitioner, I'm absolutely committed to, to helping women navigate that, that period of time. You're, you're hit with so much information. And in my case, all I heard, you know, it was like, you know, that blah, 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 ginger. All these, I went to ne- numerous doctors and got numerous opinions. And as they were talking, all I heard in my head is, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going right. to die. And when you're in that mental state, talk about stress and all the stress right. hormones circulating. When you're in that state, that is not, there are decisions, absolute life and death decisions that have to be made at, at that moment in time. In my opinion, reconstruction you know, and, and breast implants are not one of them. You're in like the fog of war. That is not the time to try to be sorting through like what kind of you know boob implant should I get and what what's the difference between silicone and this and that and, you know that that decision to me can be made when you're physically and mentally in a clearer space. Even if you chose to have implants, I don't know if it's the best time to put foreign substances into your body when you're dealing with you know just fresh surgery potential chemotherapy, potential radiation, your immune system is depressed. You know, there's a lot of things going on that really influence your ability to mount an immune response when you put a foreign substance into your body. In my opinion, that's not the time to do it. And and I can say that probably most plastic surgeons, for a number of reasons, will say, no, this is the time you have to have it done. And, and I'm saying, you know, make that decision later when you're in a clearer space and when you're in a healthier space and your body is actually recovering and when you can actually have the time to examine whether it's the right choice for you. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's a tough subject. It's one that affects more and more people daily. One thing that I I just want to make crystal clear, it's, it's not directed to the implants because men don't have them, but men get breast cancer. Men have breast tissue and, and you want to talk about an area that's really under-acknowledged and oftentimes under-diagnosed is that men get breast cancer. And, and this isn't just something um, for women, although, of course, it's predominant for women. Um, but just in terms of health awareness, people have to keep in mind that men get breast cancer as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I never, I mean, I, I, when I was researching this show, I, I did see that like 5%. It's a it's a low number, but and I'm wondering I'm wondering is that I mean if we really look at it is that due to estrogen dominance? Absolutely, I, I mean in my opinion, yes. The the uh, in terms of the whole discussion, um, we're yeah, and this is this is something I've become more knowledgeable about since studying functional medicine, is that all of us are exposed to unprecedented amounts of toxins in our food, in our environment, in our clothing, in our cosmetics. You know, we're, we're exposed to thousands more chemicals coming through uh, our, particularly our food and, you know, our, our cosmetics than we ever were. And, and it's creating a situation, you know, basically what I tell my patients when I work with them is they're called xenoestrogens because we get them in our body and our body thinks that they're estrogen and they start acting like we have estrogen and what we have are toxic chemicals. Right. 
And so, uh, so then we've got the actual estrogen circulating because they're not in the, in the binders that they should be. And that's creating this situation of estrogen dominance. And that affects men and women alike. And that, that predisposes both to not only cancers, but it affects your, it, it affects other health conditions. It's particularly um, an issue when you're dealing with chronic illnesses and diabetes and how it's affecting us and our, our ability to maintain our own health. So it's really a major issue in a lot of illnesses that we're dealing with. You're, you're hundred percent correct. I mean, I, I know I have some stress in my, well, I th- we all have stress in our life, but, right. uh, you know, and, and like I said, on another previous show that stress is like a string on a guitar. If you don't have enough of it, the sound's going to be horrible. Right. Just the amount, right amount of tension on the guitars is when you get the best sound. If you tighten it down too much, the guitar will bow or the string will bust. Right. So stress is a good thing to have. It's just, we don't want to always be in that, we don't want to be overstressed at, for long periods of time. Stress is inevitable. Stress is actually protective. Stress is, you know, the stress response that we mount is, is a protective mechanism. And we need that when we're under periods of stress. It makes us more alert. It makes us, our reflexes faster. It makes us able to deal with an immediate threat. It makes us accomplish our goals, right. you know? Right. right. The problem is, is that, you know, fighting with, you know, fighting with your kids or fighting with your husband or spilling your coffee every morning, that's not a time when you need to mount that stress response. It's just that our bodies and our, our minds don't tell the difference anymore. So stress is inevitable. How we unplug from that and how we take care of ourselves and how we deal with stress is a choice. Right. All right, let's dig into boobs. Yes, <laughs> yes. What types of implants are out available? Well, you know, that, that keeps evolving, but basically, in a very general sense, they're broken down into two kinds of implants, silicone and saline. When uh, implants were, de- you know, officially developed, actually, there's a whole history to body modification and, you know, what people have done and women have done to change their, their breast size or become what they thought was more sexy. But the official development of implants as we know them now was developed in the early 1960s. And the first implants were silicone, and they were made by Dow Corning, and since then, a number of, of other companies make them. But uh, the actual original implants were silicone, and that was what was known to be implants well into the 80s and perhaps even the 90s. I don't have the dates particularly on that. What I like to actually communicate is that, that health problems associated with silicone have been known since not only have breast implants been developed, but, but silicone in general, like you said, construction areas, you know, they, I think it became really prominent in the 80s. They have something called sick building syndrome for, for people who are uh, exposed to silica in the air and, you know, they're inhaling it. So the, the health problems associated with silicone have been known. It's been known since they were developed. You know, they, it's never, there's always been some controversy about it, but the fact is the, from what I understand, women have been getting sick since these have been developed. Not every woman, but a significant number. And in response to that, I believe there was a, a market push to perhaps do saline, which was perceived as a safer substance to, to make these implants from. 
And in many ways, it, they're not safer, but in many ways can be worse uh, and, and see different kind of uh, fungus and algae and biotoxins that, that are less likely in silicone. Saline is enclosed in a silicone casing, so you're still exposed to silicone even if you get saline implants. So those are the two areas, silicone and saline, and you know, many people will have pros and cons to both of them. And now there's, they've, they've taken this into a new area where they've got different texture for the silicone implants, and the current ones are called gummy bear implants, and it's a different substance. But then, once again, there are health hazards associated with that as well. Okay, so we know... Many people get them for cosmetic reasons, but one of the most common ones uh, or, or dealing with breast cancer is reconstructive surgery. Right. And I'm sure that you've been through this, and I would like to hear your talk on this. Well, um, I'm glad you bring that up because in my experience, many of my patients were have been dealing with breast implant illness related to implants they got for elective reasons, oftentimes in their early 20s. Um, they were women who they were told, you know, they, they were very boyish, they had small breasts, you know, they didn't look feminine. And there's a, there's a whole lot of culturalization around the idea of femininity that goes into the decision of having, you know, breast implants. And, I, and, and in, uh, in my opinion, when you decide that you're going to have breast implants for cosmetic reasons or for enhancement, I, I, I would think, and I have to say it's not my personal experience because I had to make that decision around breast cancer, but it seems to me that at the time that you're doing that, it would feel like an empowering decision around you're going to be more beautiful or you're going to be more attractive or you're, you're going to be happier in your body. And I would imagine it's a, and I, and I've heard women describe, it's a very empowering decision. Okay. I don't think it was not my experience. And I don't think that that's generally the emotional experience of many women who get it done for reconstruction. Okay. One of the things that I dealt with myself, I never had implants. I actually had the expanders, you know, they put expanders in your chest and then they they expand those over time to create a sac to put the actual implant into. Okay. I personally started experiencing uh, allergic and autoimmune reactions just to the expanders. Wow. I tried, uh, one of the, my expanders uh, was taken out like within a week. And the other one we tried to save for like eight months. And I kept getting more and more basically allergic reactions my entire right side of my body broke out in welts and rashes and blisters, and it just became really horrible until it got to the point where there was no choice but to take it out. So then I, not knowing any differently, all I thought is, oh my God, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now in terms of reconstruction? And I looked at a number of different options. And I remember going into one surgeon who does a very specific kind of uh, reconstruction and I said to him, I, I'm like, well, I know this is just cosmetic and, you know, maybe I shouldn't care so much about it or whatever. And he looked at me and he said, let's make this very clear. I don't consider this to be cosmetic surgery. He said, you have had a part of your body amputated, no different than having, you know, an arm or a foot amputated because of illness. He's like, this is not cosmetic reconstruction. This is primary reconstruction because of amputation. 
And it's really important to see it that way because this is not just a matter of vanity or cosmetic. It's, it's, it's because of an illness. And I think that that's a very different mindset. Mm. What I heard from many women that I knew that had had reconstruction is that they were angry. They were resentful. They didn't like them. You know, and at the time, I, I, I didn't really quite know how to understand all of this because I, I was kind of struggling with the decision. But they were saying that the implants weren't part of them. That, uh, that they, you know, one of my friends would say she woke up in the middle of the night and she could be having a hot flash and, and absolutely burning up and the implants would be ice cold or vice versa. Or she would hug somebody and it felt like there was a wall between her and the person that she was hugging that, that they weren't part of her. They, there is no sensation when you get, when you get implants uh, for reconstruction. So I think, and, and so I think all the grief and the sadness and the anger and everything that gets wrapped up in the diagnosis also gets wrapped up in the implants because you didn't get the implants out of choice. You got them because there was a gun to your head. And you were being told that your breasts were going to be cut off and you're just desperately trying to figure out how to retain your wholeness in the midst of an overwhelming diagnosis. There's so much fear wrapped up in it that, you know, like for me, I was telling, I was talking to my husband last night about this podcast that we were doing. And I was like, do you remember us ever asking anything about what he was recommending in terms of what it was made from? I don't even ever remember looking at the boobs. I, I didn't, I, I, that wasn't, all I could think of was the cancer and that was going to, and the normal path was to get reconstruction, but I don't ever look, remember looking saying, well, I want silicone or I want this or I want that. I, that was secondary to the fact that I was trying to survive an overwhelming diagnosis. So I think that, and, and I, and granted other women might be more plugged into that, but I was, you know, that's, that's the mental state that I was in. I remember I would go into my doctor's office and he had a glass shelf, you know, in the corner that he had all of the different uh, silicone or saline implants that women could look at. And it was like in different sizes and different textures. And I remember turning to my husband and I was like, I feel like it's like pick a boob, any boob, you know, what size, (laughs) when do you get it put in? It's like, I don't care. I just want to make sure I don't die. It's not pick a boob. Um, And uh, so I, I just really like to, focus on the the fact that I think that there's an emotional distinction between when you feel empowered doing it and when you're doing it because you you feel like you have no other choice. And now a word from our sponsor. We'll be back in a minute. We all know that eating healthy is a part of becoming a better person. But if you're finding the organic and non-toxic products too expensive or hard to find, then ThriveMarket.com, the healthy online shopping club, is your solution. Like the Costco meets Whole Foods for everything healthy online, you'll get the best organic and non-GMO brands up to 50% off retail prices, shipped nationally to your door for free within two to three days. When you become a member, ThriveMarket.com will donate a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or veteran so we can all thrive together. You never have to pay full price for healthy food again. Go to ThriveMarket.com slash TheRebelHealthCoach to get your free jar of coconut oil and 15% off your first order. This offer is valued at $18 and available for our listeners only on this special link. So here it is again, thrivemarket.com slash the rebel health coach. Let's 
talk about the toxicity aspect of the the implants. Breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. Right. That is a rare form of cancer that they have now uh, discovered that is that is highly associated with uh, the the new gummy bear implants, which are supposed to be the as as I understand it to be the most you know, the newest, most natural kind of implants they can do. And uh, this particular cancer, so to take a step back, the structure of, a, of an implant, it's really important in terms of the whole discussion, is that when they put an implant in, they actually put something that they call a capsule. And so basically it holds the implant, because as you can imagine, an implant's supposed to be soft and pliable and it doesn't have a lot of inbuilt form to it. So if you just put it in, it would spread everywhere. So they put in a capsule, which basically holds the implant in place. And it's really important to understand that because if women actually get breast implant illness and they are approaching surgeons to have them removed, it's really important to see a surgeon and make sure you ask them about doing an in-block capsulectomy which means removing the implant and the capsule it's in. And a lot of doctors don't want to remove the capsule because it's a little bit more difficult and they say it's no problem. But this particular cancer that you mentioned, that is actually, that cancer is seeded in the in- capsule. It's, it's uh, I believe it's a cancer that develops with mutated cells around the capsule. So that's even more reason to be very specific that, that the capsule has to come out as well as the implant if that's the path that you're choosing. And that particular cancer is highly associated with this new fangled version of implants, which is called the gummy bear implants. Okay. What are the gummy bear implants? Why, how did they get their name? And I'm, I'm sure they don't, don't melt down a bunch of gummy bears and throw them in a bag. <laughs> the poor little bears. <laughs> um, actually, it's because of the consistency. You know, it's, it's, it's because of the, and I, you know, as I understand it, you know, the natural feel of them, you know, they're supposed to be more, you know, softer and more natural. And, and so that's the slang term, uh, the, the gummy bear implants. Yeah. I, I, you know, although that would be a good use for gummy bears because <laughs> Because they are absolutely useless, other words. Well, otherwise. I have to tell you, in terms of ever trying to eat a gummy bear, I agree with you. That's probably the best use of them. <laughs> so one of the things that I really like to, uh, I mean, this is, I mean, just, I mean, this is like any of the silicone implants. One of the things that I really like to bring awareness to is that just the basic, I, I, there may be even more chemicals, but a basic silicone implant is made from 37 chemicals. Wow. And, you know, things like epoxy and glue and alcohol and, you know, cement residue and, you know, just, just you, you, reading, reading the 37 ingredients is pretty, is pretty alarming. You're like, huh? But, but in addition to that, over half of the known ingredients of a silicone implant are known uh, through other areas are known to be neurotoxic or carcinogenic. Wow. So one of the first symptoms that women will often describe when they're getting sick from their implant is neurological impairment. They'll have numbness or they'll have tingling or they'll have areas of you know, loss of sensation. Oftentimes, if they've had one side done, it'll be on the side they had the implant put in. A lot of women will describe visual changes, uh, headaches, 
there's something called Sjogren's syndrome, which is an abnormal drying of the eyes and the mouth and the mucosa. So it's really important when, when you think about the fact that these chemicals that are put into implants are known to be neurotoxic and women are complaining of neurological problems. They're going to doctors, and I do have to preface this with the fact that there's a lot of doctors who refuse to admit that there's anything negative associated with implants. You know, they're like, there's nothing to see here. It's absolutely not related to your implants. It's in your head. Women are misdiagnosed. They're, they're diagnosed, you know, they, they probably do have fibromyalgia and, and um, chronic uh, fatigue syndrome, and they have symptoms of those illnesses, Epstein-Barr virus, they have those symptoms, but, but the doctors are saying, yeah, but this is unrelated to your implants. And that's part of why I am so passionate about talking about this subject is that, is that we just need to become more knowledgeable. And the women who are going through this need to know that they're not alone and they're not crazy. That, um, so if you think about, going back to what I was saying, if you think about the fact that we know that the chemicals that are put in these implants are neurotoxic, and women are having neurological symptoms, it's not a big leap to connect those two things. Hmm. Okay. Your birds want to get in on this conversation. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. Um, somebody told me having birds was like having two-year-olds that never grew up, and boy, is that true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the reconstruction of a double mastectomy and the options that are available there's an option out there now that they use your own body fat. Yes. So let's go, let's talk about as a cancer patient or as a breast cancer survivor, the options available for somebody after having a double mastectomy. Well, I'm so glad you bring that up because um, I, this is something I learned as I was going through my own reconstruction process. You know, as I said, at first, I never thought about reconstruction because I, I think my men, my, my mental state at the time is like, well, yeah, if you go through this, then you get reconstruction. And there was never a question mark in there for me. And if there's anything I'd like to encourage women to do is to pause and put a question mark in there. Is, re- is reconstruction right for me? And it's not right for everybody. And, you know, there's a lot of different things to consider, age and overall health and, you know, maybe the relationship you're in and, and your partner and my partner, um, you know, he was not my husband at the time. He was absolutely adamant that he did not want me to go through reconstruction. He was more concerned about my overall health and not going through multiple surgeries and multiple procedures. He was like, I just wish you would get an exotic tattoo. He did not want me getting reconstruction. So that push, you know, actually came from me because to me, I was the one that was looking in the mirror every day and I had nothing left. I had a bilateral mastectomy. I had skin, ribs, and scars, and that's what I looked at for months and months and months. To tell you the truth, if I knew then what I know now, I think I would get the most exotic tattoo I could find. As a matter of fact, I was telling my husband last night, I wish I had gotten an exotic tattoo. That fits my personality. But at the time, so, so you know, the standard reconstruction is to put in implants. Those are expanded to a certain size over time when you have the skin pocket that's large enough to be able to see the uh, actual implant into, then that's when you trade out the expanders for the implants. The thing that I didn't know that I saw other women that I knew going through this is that's a very painful procedure. You know, in my case, 
Now, it, not all implants are done this way, but I know in my case, it was placed under the, the pectoral muscle. So if you can imagine expanding these things under your chest muscle, that, you know, you've just, you know, gone through surgery, you've, you know, uh, and, and all the trauma associated with that. He, my doctor actually did one expansion, a very small expansion on the one imp, uh, expander that I had. I was violently, I mean, I was throwing up, I was in pain, taking pain medicine the rest of the day. So that, that whole expansion process is not a benign process. It's actually pretty painful. But that's the process, the standard process. You have it expanded, and then you put the implant in when you've got a skin pocket large enough for the expander. I mean, for the implant. Okay. So, so, so that's one. That's, so it's, for a long time, it's been considered there are two options. That's one. The other option is called a DEEP procedure. It's D-I-E-P. So they go and they do liposuction. They spin down the fat. They take the cells from that. And they inject that into your breast. So it's, it's, it's a fat transfer of your own tissue, your own fat cells, which, you know, to me sounded pretty great to get rid of right. fat that way. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Right. <laughs> but um, but the, the, the caveat to that particular kind of reconstruction is that, so fat transfer has been done for a long time. It actually um, kind of originated in people from South America who wanted to have bigger butts. So they were doing fat transfer, you know, to to actually make their butts more voluptuous. You know, it's a very <laughs> aesthetic thing. So fat transfer has been around for a long time. But what's required when you do fat transfer is like any other tissue in the body, there has to be a blood supply your, or the fat just dies off, you know, and, and you know, it, you just excrete it from your body. So there has to be a blood supply to allow those tissues to to remain healthy and to stay. So that's the, the key part, this deep procedure that I just mentioned. What they do is they, they reroute blood vessels from your lower abdomen up through and into the chest in order to provide a blood supply for the fat that's been transplanted there. Wow. It's really, I mean, in the one person that I saw like the day after she had it done, it looked like she had been cut in half. I mean, it was really visually, you know, pretty overwhelming. Um, it's microvascular surgery that, you know, it's like 10, 12, 14 hours of microvascular surgery. It's pretty intricate and it's very involved. And because of my history, you know, with having a blood clot the first time I had cancer and be left paralyzed for two and a half years, I really decided that me and vascular surgery, microvascular surgery was not a match made in heaven. And so when I went to see the doctor, the one who reminded me that this was, you know, a, a reconstruction for amputation... I went to see him and, and I, I just kept telling myself, I just have to do this. I just have to do this. I just have to do this because I knew I, I wasn't tolerating foreign body implants. And then as I sat with him for the second consult, I just realized that there was no way that I could make myself go through that kind of procedure. The fear was too overwhelming. So I thanked him. I left the office and I said to my husband, like, I guess we need to start looking at the tattoo option because... I, I, I'm not a candidate for either one of these surgeries, which were the only two that I knew of that were available. So I ended up calling my original plastic surgeon and said, look, you know, I, I guess I just have to really deal with, you know, this reality. And he said, well, there's a third kind of procedure. Not a lot of doctors are trained in it, but it's a very specific kind of procedure. It's the same concept of a fat transfer, but it doesn't require the rerouting of all the arteries for the blood supply. And I was like, 
okay, really? Now, now you've got my attention. So it turns out he was the only doctor in San Francisco that was doing this procedure. There's a few hundred doctors around the country who do this procedure, but it's not as well known. And it's, it's uh, the man who developed this procedure. His name is Michael Curry. He's in Florida. And, and it's called, uh, it, it uses a particular type of, type of equipment, and he calls it a BRAVA fat transfer, B-R-A-V-A. And it's a particular way of applying suction cups to the breast to, you know, basically expand the tissue to develop that envelope that you need. But the process of, of expanding it in this way creates angiogenesis, which is basically a fancy term for creating the micro vessels that would give the fat tissue the blood supply. Okay. And so you, so I wore these, they're called, they're, I call them Brunhilde domes, but basically they're domes that I applied to my chest that had a small amount of constant suction. And I wore them uh, 12 to 15 hours a day for a month before I would have the fat transfer. And so it was slowly stretching the skin and the tissue and creating that angiogenesis, that blood supply. And then I went in and my doctor did the liposuction, spun it down and did the fat transfer. This particular way of doing it is a staged procedure. You can only do so much at one time without increasing your chance of the fat die off. But that's eventually, I went through that procedure three times and that's the kind of reconstruction that I had. And it didn't require the microvascular surgery. It did, I don't have implants. It's my natural tissue. I'm not going to reject my own tissue. I mean, if anything, they, you have the fat die off because the, the, the blood supply doesn't take. Um, but but that's, that's not a toxic condition. So it was the most natural form of reconstruction available. But it's not widely known because not every plastic surgeon trains in it. And so I'm kind of on a mission to let people know and let women know there's a third option out there. Okay, cool. I, we're going to wrap things up here today on this part, on the boobs. Wow, it's such a, I know, it, it, I look, just looked at the time goes so fast. And I know, there's it does. just so much, you know, there's. Um, well, that's why I think, you know, dividing this into two sections is probably best because, you know, the other sections, just as big, so. Well, I, I will like to say in closing that, um, you know, like you, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're a rebel and I'm a rebel in my own cause and a little cheeky too. So um, I am committed to this. This is the area that I specialize in and I'm actually in the process of outlining to write a book around educating women. So anyway, the I put it all and and I mean this in the most loving and healthy way I possibly could. But the name of my book, the name of my whole uh, approach is that boobs are not worth dying for. Oh, nice. It doesn't matter if it's reconstruction. It doesn't matter if you're trying to make decisions about how to deal with cancer. The fact is, is that women's breasts are central to our identity. And, and the decisions you make are so influenced by so many factors. And all I want to say to women is that your boobs are not worth dying for, you know, Make the decision for your health. Make the decision for your sanity. Make the decision that gives you the chance for a wonderful, vibrant life. You know, this can be dealt with. It can be dealt with emotionally. It can be dealt with physically. There are choices. There are options. But please make sure that you're getting mammograms or thermography or whatever your choice is. Make sure you're getting checked out. 
make sure you're not sticking your head in the sand because you don't want to face the fact that you might get upsetting news. The the only thing that, you know, a lot of women, my best friend who, you know, said to me, oh, I, I don't even get checked because I don't even want to know if I have breast cancer. It's like all that does is increase your chances of dying. You know, the, the earlier you know, you know, the, the more prevention you can do, the more you can take control of your health and, and not die from this. And I'm committed to women not dying from this. You know, boobs aren't worth dying for. You know, I, I honestly believe that. And I just want to empower every woman to know that. Where can people find you? Uh, well, my uh, website, which is a work in progress, is called mindbodynutritionrn.com. My personal uh, email is radicalhealthrn at gmail.com. And I am absolutely open to questions or comments or people seeking information. And I, I'm so passionate about educating women and loved ones and people in general about the options. Um, I can be reached at radicalhealthrn at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd love to be able to talk to people if they have any questions. Okay, great. That's awesome. Well, I have one more question. You're going to get to answer this question twice, but given that you have an hour of time to relax or unwind or even pump yourself up, what album or artist would you listen to? Well, it depends. So my go-to music is I'm a classic rock and roll girl, so I love the Eagles. I just love the Eagles. But if I'm in a mood, I have to say Pink and her sassy music got me through most of my treatment. I would just turn on pink and pink out for hours okay. on end. Those are my two choices. All right. Thank you so much, Deborah. Oh, thank you, Tom. This has been great. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me a, a platform to, you know, really reach more people and to do some education. It's my pleasure. I'm trying to, uh, my mission is to get the word out to everybody about everything related to health. So I love it. I love it. Thanks so much. Um, this has been great. Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.